0: Section fifteen of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter six. Part one. Will Brangwen had some weeks of holiday after his marriage. So the two took their honeymoon in full hands, alone in their cottage together. And to him, as the days went by, it was as if the heavens had fallen and he were sitting with her among the ruins, in a new world, everybody else buried, themselves two blissful survivors with everything to squander as they would. At first he could not get rid of a culpable sense of license on his part. Wasn't there some duty outside, calling him, and he did not come? It was all very well at night, when the doors were locked and the darkness drawn round the two of them. Then they were the only inhabitants of the visible earth, the rest were under the flood. And being alone in the world, they were a law unto themselves, they could enjoy and squander and waste like consciousless gods. But in the morning, as the carts clanked by and children shouted down the lane— As the hucksters came calling their wares and the church clock struck eleven, and he and she had not got up yet, even to breakfast, he could not help feeling guilty, as if he were committing a breach of the law, ashamed that he was not up and doing. Doing what? She asked. What is there to do? You will only lounge about. Still, even lounging about was respectable. One was at least in connection with the world then. Whereas now, lying so still and peacefully while the daylight came obscurely through the drawn blind, one was severed from the world, one shut oneself off in tacit denial of the world, and he was troubled. But it was so sweet and satisfying, lying there talking desultorily with her. It was sweeter than sunshine, and not so effinescent. It was even irritating the way the church clock kept on chiming. There seemed no space between the hours, just a moment— golden and still, while she traced his features with her fingertips, utterly careless and happy, and he loved her to do it. But he was strange and unused, so suddenly everything that had been before was shed away and gone. One day he was a bachelor, living with the world. The next day he was with her, as remote from the world as if the two of them were buried like a seed in darkness. Suddenly, like a chestnut falling out of a burr, he was shed naked and glistening onto a soft, fecund earth, leaving behind him the hard rind of worldly knowledge and experience. He heard it in the huckster's cries, the noise of carts, the calling of children, and it was all like the hard, shed rind discarded. Inside, in the softness and stillness of the room, was the naked kernel that palpitated in silent activity, absorbed in reality. Inside the room was a great steadiness, a core of living eternity. Only far outside, at the rim, went on the noise and the destruction. Here at the center the great wheel was motionless, centered upon itself. Here was a poised, unflawed stillness that was beyond time, because it remained the same, inexhaustible, unchanging, unexhausted. As they lay close together, complete and beyond the touch of time or change, it was as if they were at the very center of all the slow wheeling of space and the rapid agitation of life, deep, deep inside them all, at the center where there is utter radiance, an eternal being, and the silence absorbed in praise, the steady core of all movements, the unwakened sleep of all wakefulness, they found themselves there and they lay still, in each other's arms. For their moment they were at the heart of eternity, whilst time roared far off, forever far off, towards the rim. Then gradually they were passed away from the supreme center, down the circles of praise and joy and gladness, further and further out, towards the noise and the friction. But their hearts had burned and were tempered by the inner reality. They were unalterably glad, Gradually, they began to wake up. The noises outside became more real. They understood and answered the call outside. They counted the strokes of the bell. And when they counted midday, they understood that it was midday in the world, and for themselves also. It dawned upon her that she was hungry. She had been getting hungrier for a lifetime. But even yet it was not sufficiently real to rouse her. A long way off she could hear the words, "'I am dying of hunger.' Yet she lay still, separate, at peace, and the words were unuttered. There was still another lapse. And then, quite calmly, even a little surprised, she was in the present and was saying, "'I am dying with hunger.' "'So am I,' he said calmly, as if it were of not the slightest significance.' and they relapsed into the warm golden stillness, and the minutes flowed unheeded past the window outside. Then suddenly she stirred against him. My dear, I am dying of hunger, she said. It was a slight pain to him to be brought to. We'll get up, he said, unmoving. And she sank her head onto him again, and they lay still, lapsing. Half-consciously he heard the clock chime the hour, She did not hear. Do get up, she murmured at length, and give me something to eat. Yes, he said, and he put his arms round her, and she lay with her face on him. They were faintly astonished that they did not move. The minutes rustled louder at the window. Let me go, then, he said. She lifted her head from him relinquishingly. With a little breaking away, he moved out of bed "'and was taking his clothes. "'She stretched out her hand to him. "'You are so nice,' she said, "'and he went back for a moment or two. "'Then, actually, he did slip into some clothes, "'and looking round quickly at her, "'he was gone out of the room. "'She lay translated again into a pale, clearer peace. "'As if she were a spirit, "'she listened to the noise of him downstairs, "'as if she were no longer of the material world.' It was half-past one. He looked at the silent kitchen, untouched from last night, dim with the drawn blind. And he hastened to draw up the blind, so people should know they were not in bed any later. Well, it was his own house, it did not matter. Hastily he put wood in the grate and made a fire. He exulted in himself, like an adventurer on an undiscovered island. The fire blazed up, he put on the kettle. How happy he felt, how still and secluded the house was. There were only he and she in the world. But when he unbolted the door and, half-dressed, looked out, he felt furtive and guilty. The world was there, after all, and he had felt so secure as though this house were the ark in the flood and all the rest was drowned. The world was there, and it was afternoon. The morning had vanished and gone by. The day was growing old. Where was the bright, fresh morning? He was accused. Was the morning gone? And he had lain with blinds drawn, let it pass by unnoticed? He looked again round the chill, gray afternoon. And he himself, so soft and warm and glowing. There were two sprigs of yellow jasmine in the saucer that covered the milk jug. He wondered who had been and left the sign. Taking the jug, he hastily shut the door. Let the day and the daylight drop out. Let it go by unseen. He did not care. What did one day more or less matter to him? It could fall into oblivion, unspent if it liked, this one course of daylight. "'Somebody has been and found the door locked,' he said when he went upstairs with the tray. He gave her the two sprigs of jasmine, she laughed as she sat up in bed, childishly threading the flowers in the breast of her nightdress. Her brown hair stuck out like a nimbus, all fierce, round her softly glowing face. Her dark eyes watched the tray eagerly. "'How good!' she cried, sniffing the cold air. "'I'm glad you did a lot.' And she stretched out her hands eagerly for her plate. "'Come back to bed, quick! It's cold!' She rubbed her hands together sharply. He put off what little clothing he had on and sat beside her in the bed. You look like a lion with your mane sticking out and your nose pushed over your food, he said. She tinkled with laughter and gladly ate her breakfast. The morning was sunk away unseen, the afternoon was steadily going too, and he was letting it go. One bright transit of daylight gone by unacknowledged, There was something unmanly, recusant in it. He could not quite reconcile himself to the fact. He felt he ought to get up, go out quickly into the daylight, and work or spend himself energetically in the open air of the afternoon, retrieving what was left to him of the day. But he did not go. Well, one might as well be hung for a sheep as for a lamb. If he had lost this day of his life, he had lost it. He gave it up. He was not going to count his losses. She didn't care. She didn't care in the least. Then why should he? Should he be behind her in recklessness and independence? She was superb in her indifference. He wanted to be like her. She took her responsibilities lightly. When she spilled her tea on the pillow, she rubbed it carelessly with a handkerchief and turned over the pillow. He would have felt guilty. She did not. And it pleased him. It pleased him very much to see how these things did not matter to her. When the meal was over, she wiped her mouth on her handkerchief quickly, satisfied and happy, and settled down on the pillow again, with her fingers in his close, strange, fur-like hair. The evening began to fall. The light was half alive, livid. He hid his face against her. "'I don't like the twilight,' he said. "'I love it,' she answered. He hid his face against her, who was warm and like sunlight. She seemed to have sunlight inside her. Her heart beating seemed like sunlight upon him. In her was a more real day than the day could give, so warm and steady and restoring. He hid his face against her whilst the twilight fell, whilst she lay staring out with her unseeing dark eyes, as if she wandered forth untrammeled in the vagueness. The vagueness gave her scope, and set her free. To him, turned toward her heart pulse, all was very still and very warm and very close, like noontide. He was glad to know this warm, full noon. It ripened him and took away his responsibility, some of his conscience. They got up when it was quite dark. She hastily twisted her hair into a knot and was dressed in a twinkling. Then they went downstairs, drew to the fire, and sat in silence, saying a few words now and then. Her father was coming. She bundled the dishes away, flew round and tidied the room, assumed another character, and again seated herself. He sat thinking of his carving of Eve. He loved to go over his carving in his mind, dwelling on every stroke, every line. How he loved it now. When he went back to his creation panel again, he would finish his Eve, tender and sparkling. It did not satisfy him yet. The Lord should labor over her in a silent passion of creation, and Adam should be tense, as if in a dream of immortality, and Eve should take form glimmeringly, shadowily, as if the Lord must wrestle with his own soul for her, yet she was a radiance. What are you thinking about? "'She asked. "'He found it difficult to say. "'His soul became shy when he tried to communicate it. "'I was thinking my Eve was too hard and lively. "'Why? "'I don't know. "'She should be more... "'He made a gesture of infinite tenderness. "'There was a stillness with a little joy. "'He could not tell her any more. "'Why could he not tell her any more?' She felt a pang of disconsolate sadness, but it was nothing. She went to him. Her father came and found them both very glowing, like an open flower. He loved to sit with them. Where there was a perfume of love, anyone who came must breathe it. They were both very quick and alive, lit up from the other world, so that it was quite an experience for them that anyone else could exist." But still it troubled Will Brangwen a little in his orderly, conventional mind that the established rule of things had gone so utterly. One ought to get up in the morning and wash oneself and be a decent social being. Instead, the two of them stayed in bed till nightfall and then got up. She never washed her face, but sat there talking to her father as bright and shameless as a daisy opened out of the dew. Or she got up at ten o'clock And quite blithely went to bed again at three, or at half past four, stripping him naked in the daylight, and all so gladly and perfectly, oblivious quite of his qualms. He let her do as she liked with him, and shone with strange pleasure. She was to dispose of him as she would. He was translated with gladness to be in her hands. And down went his qualms, his maxims, his rules, his smaller beliefs. She scattered them like an expert skittle player. He was very much astonished and delighted to see them scatter. He stood and gazed and grinned with wonder whilst his tablets of stone went bounding and bumping and splintering down the hill, dislodged forever. Indeed, it was true, as they said, that a man wasn't born before he was married. What a change indeed! He surveyed the rind of the world. Houses factories, trams, the discarded rind. People scurrying about, work going on, all on the discarded surface. An earthquake had burst it all from inside. It was as if the surface of the world had been broken away entire. Ilkston, streets, church, people, work, rule of the day, all intact, and yet peeled away into unreality. Leaving here exposed the inside, the reality, one's own being, strange feelings and passions and yearnings and beliefs and aspirations, suddenly become present, revealed, the permanent bedrock, knitted one rock with the woman one loved. It was confounding. Things are not what they seem. When he was a child, he had thought a woman was a woman merely by virtue of her skirts and petticoats. And now, lo, the whole world could be divested of its garment. The garment could lie there shed away intact, and one could stand in a new world, a new earth, naked in a new naked universe. It was too astounding and miraculous. This, then, was marriage. The old things didn't matter anymore. One got up at four o'clock and had broth at tea time and made toffee in the middle of the night. One didn't put on one's clothes, or one did put on one's clothes. He still was not quite sure it was not criminal, but it was a discovery to find one might be so supremely absolved. All that mattered was that he should love her, and she should love him, and they should live kindled to one another, like the Lord in two burning bushes that were not consumed, and so they lived for the time. She was less hampered than he, so she came more quickly to her fullness, and was sooner ready to enjoy again a return to the outside world. She was going to give a tea party. His heart sank. He wanted to go on, to go on as they were. He wanted to have done with the outside world, to declare it finished forever. He was anxious with a deep desire and anxiety that she should stay with him where they were in the timeless universe of free, perfect limbs and immortal breast, affirming that the old outward order was finished. The new order was begun to last forever, the living life, palpitating from the gleaming core to action, without crust or cover or outward lie. But no, he could not keep her. She wanted the dead world again. She wanted to walk on the outside once more. She was going to give a tea party. It made him frightened and furious and miserable. He was afraid all would be lost that he had so newly come into. Like the youth in the fairy tale, who was king for one day in the year, and for the rest a beaten herd. Like Cinderella also, at the feast. He was sullen. But she blithely began to make preparations for her tea party. His fear was too strong. He was troubled. He hated her shallow anticipation and joy. Was she not forfeiting the reality, the one reality, for all that was shallow and worthless? Wasn't she carelessly taking off her crown to be an artificial figure, having other artificial women to tea, when she might have been perfect with him and kept him perfect in the land of intimate connection? Now he must be deposed, his joy must be destroyed. He must put on the vulgar, shallow death of an outward existence. He ground his soul in uneasiness and fear. But she rose to a real outburst of housework, turning him away as she shoved the furniture aside to her broom. He stood hanging miserable near. He wanted her back. Dread and desire for her to stay with him, and shame at his own dependence on her drove him to anger. He began to lose his head. The wonder was going to pass away again. All the love, the magnificent new order, was going to be lost. She would forfeit it all for the outside things. She would admit the outside world again. She would throw away the living fruit for the ostensible rind. He began to hate this in her. Driven by fear of her departure into a state of helplessness, almost of imbecility, he wandered about the house. And she, with her skirts kilted up, flew round at her work, absorbed. Shake the rug, then, if you must hang around, she said. And fretting with resentment, he went to shake the rug. She was blithely unconscious of him. He came back, hanging near to her. Can't you do anything? she said, as if to a child, impatiently. Can't you do your woodwork? Where shall I do it? he asked, harsh with pain. Anywhere. How furious that made him. Or go for a walk, she continued. Go down to the marsh. Don't hang about as if you were only half there. He winced and hated it. He went away to read, Never had his soul felt so flayed and uncreated. And soon he must come down again to her. His hovering near her, wanting her to be with him, the futility of him, the way his hands hung irritated her beyond bearing. She turned on him blindly and destructively. He became a mad creature, black and electric with fury. The dark storms rose in him. His eyes glowed black and evil, He was fiendish in his thwarted soul. There followed two black and ghastly days when she was set in anguish against him and he felt as if he were in a black, violent underworld and his wrists quivered murderously and she resisted him. He seemed a dark, almost evil thing pursuing her, hanging on to her, burdening her. She would give anything to have him removed. You need some work to do, she said. You ought to be at work. Can't you do something? His soul only grew the blacker. His condition now became complete. The darkness of his soul was thorough. Everything had gone. He remained complete in his own tense, black will. He was now unaware of her. She did not exist. His dark, passionate soul had recoiled upon itself. And now... Clinched and coiled round a center of hatred, existed in its own power. There was a curiously ugly pallor, an expressionlessness in his face. She shuddered from him. She was afraid of him. His will seemed grappled upon her. She retreated before him. She went down to the marsh. She entered again the immunity of her parents' love for her. He remained at Yew Cottage black and clenched, his mind dead. He was unable to work at his wood carving. He went on working monotonously at the garden, blindly, like a mole. As she came home up the hill, looking away at the town dim and blue on the hill, her heart relaxed and became yearning. She did not want to fight him any more. She wanted love, oh, love. Her feet began to hurry. She wanted to get back to him. Her heart became tight with yearning for him. He had been making the garden in order, cutting the edges of the turf, laying the path with stones. He was a good, capable workman. "'How nice you've made it!' she said, approaching tentatively down the path. But he did not heed, he did not hear. His brain was solid and dead. "'Haven't you made it nice?' she repeated rather plaintively. He looked up at her with that fixed, expressionless face and unseeing eyes which shocked her, made her go dazed and blind. Then he turned away. She saw his slender, stooping figure groping. A revulsion came over her. She went indoors. As she took off her hat in the bedroom, she found herself weeping bitterly, with some of the old, anguished, childish desolation. She sat still and cried on. She did not want him to know. She was afraid of his hard, evil moments. The head dropped a little, rigidly, in a crouching, cruel way. She was afraid of him. He seemed to lacerate her sensitive femaleness. He seemed to hurt her womb, to take pleasure in torturing her. He came into the house. The sound of his footsteps in his heavy boots filled her with horror a hard, cruel, malignant sound. She was afraid he would come upstairs. But he did not. She waited apprehensively. He went out. Where she was most vulnerable, he hurt her. Oh, where she was delivered over to him, in her very soft femaleness. He seemed to lacerate her and desecrate her. She pressed her hands over her womb in anguish whilst the tears ran down her face. And why, and why, why was he like this? End of Section 15 Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey